I'm going to have you stand again because we just love to make you stand. Um, and let's read our scripture for this morning together. Acts chapter 18, 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing, or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you have a Bible this morning, I would encourage you to open it. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, not pews, chairs, um, it's on page 872, Acts chapter 18, 1 through 17, page 872. And while you're doing that, I want to wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. I hope this is a a great week for you, and uh, wherever you are in Thanksgiving, I I hope it's a, it's a, it's just a great day. Also want to wish you a very nice piece of pie with a mountain of whipping cream on top following this service. Uh, I happen to know that there is a, an abundance of pie still in the kitchen that's not out on the tables. And, uh, you could stay and eat pie pretty much all afternoon if you wanted to. But I hope you'll hang out and just uh, meet somebody you don't know and enjoy some pie together. You know, as I've thought about Thanksgiving this year, I've been reminded that that very first uh, feast enjoyed by the pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians in the fall of 1621 was celebrated in recognition of a su- successful harvest, to be sure, uh, but also in gratitude to God for bringing them to the new world, preserving them through that first Incredibly difficult winter, and uh, history records they feasted for three days. Can you imagine that? I, I think that'd be awesome. Three days of football and turkey and pie. Three days. 
Sounds like heaven to me. Well, anyway, given, <laughs> given the dangers of the journey and the rough conditions aboard the Mayflower, uh, there was at least one major, major storm at sea that battered the ship, broke the mast. They were fortunate to have been able to get the mast back up and functioning. Um, it's surprising that only one person out of 102 passengers, uh, a young man named William Button, um, perished on the 66-day voyage, 66 days across the Atlantic. Um, it's still amazing to me that we can fly around the world in less than one day, right, today. Uh, 66 days across the Atlantic aboard a ship. Um, but only one died on the voyage. But during that first winter of 1620 to 1621, uh, 45 of the 120, uh, 102 original passengers died and they're buried on Coles Hill in Plymouth. Any of you been to Plymouth and seen that? There's a there's a hill called Coles Hill. There's a sarcophagus at the top, and uh, I guess it's a mass grave for all of those who died in that first winter. Uh, all those who survived, nevertheless, suffered severely from lack of adequate shelter, from malnutrition. Many of them had scurvy, uh, other factors. They had made a successful voyage. The 56 survived the winter. They were in rough shape, but they endured, and so they gave thanks to God. This year, you and I might say the same. The past three years have been pretty difficult, been tough years. Pandemic has brought with it some deep losses and some radical changes. Many of us will admit, if we're honest, that we're not in great shape. But we endured and we survived. Today's scripture is so appropriate for Thanksgiving Sunday because it speaks, I think, to God's faithful provision for his people, even and especially in in times of injury, of pain, of loss, and change. What we find as we scan the New Testament scriptures is that as Paul arrived in Corinth from Athens, he wasn't in such great shape either. A little bit about Corinth. The population at that time was about 200,000, roughly 20 times the population of Athens. Athens was a much smaller community. Uh, Corinth was populated with local Greeks, with freedmen, that is, non-slaves from Italy, uh, Roman army veterans, businessmen, government officials, uh, natives of the eastern Mediterranean, uh, including a quite large population of Jews. So if Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world, one would have to acknowledge Corinth as the commercial center. As people in real estate often say location, location, location. Uh, Corinth had so many commercial advantages because of its location at the convergence of both land and sea trade routes. Corinth sat on this peninsula, uh, still does today, boasted two major ports on one on either side of that peninsula, and goods from all over the known world uh, came to and through and out of 
Corinth. And along with its great wealth, with its relative luxury for those days, Corinth was famous for rampant immorality of every kind. As early as the 5th century B.C., the expression to be to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. Um, and, and a Corinthian companion was a euphemism for a prostitute. This reputation was still richly deserved when Paul visited in the middle of the 1st century A.D. because Corinth was the center for the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, uh, whom the Romans called Diana. The, the temple of Aphrodite employed a thousand, no less than a thousand sacred prostitutes. And, and every evening those prostitutes would come down from the temple into the city and, and engage sexually with the residents of Corinth as acts of worship of their goddess. There are also other shrines and, and temples to Greek gods and goddesses found throughout the city. Well, let's think a little bit about Paul's pattern, because if you've been with us in recent weeks, you've probably begun to notice a, a repeated pattern in Paul's experience in each city he visits. And it goes something like this. Paul arrives in town. Uh, he goes to the synagogue. He reasons with the Jews and some God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, some believe, some do not. More do not than do. Opposition arises, a riot breaks out, somebody gets beat up. That's kind of the way it goes. And uh, and a very similar pattern actually began to develop in Corinth. And I want us to spend some time this morning in light of that, thinking together about the actually the physical and the emotional and the spiritual condition of the Apostle Paul. He was in rough shape. He was in rough shape. Let's begin with what everyone who has ever read or studied the New Testament already knows, and that's that Paul was a spiritual giant, right? In fact, I've heard him compared to a redwood tree in terms of his spiritual stature. He was just, he was, he was the guy. And in our study through the book of Acts, we, we've seen Paul emerge as the, the unparalleled leader of the mission of the Christian church in the first century. Um, the reach and the impact of his efforts in evangelism and church planting are unequaled. Paul wrote fully half of all of the books of the New Testament, such that his impact just keeps going on today, presumably will go on and until Jesus comes. And if, if I was to go around the room this morning and, and ask each of you, um, to share a scripture verse or a passage that's been especially meaningful to you in your life, um, I would guess that many of those would come directly from one of Paul's New Testament letters. But Luke also provides us, if we will take the time to observe it, with insight into Paul's unique suffering, his inner struggle. Consider, for example, the, the cumulative effect, the cumulative effect of the adversity and the violence that Paul had experienced and that we've read about. From the very outset of Paul's ministry, just immediately following his conversion, the Jews began trying to kill him. I don't know what that would be like to be hunted, do you? How would that over time affect 
your mindset? Uh, Might it cause you to spend a good deal of time looking over your shoulder? And recall that in Pisidian Antioch, the Jews incited some of the leading people of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas, to drive them out of the district. At Iconium, an attempt was made first to abuse and injure Paul and Barnabas, and then to stone them to death. They seem to have escaped the stoning on that occasion, moved on to Lystra, where Luke tells us in verse 19 of chapter 14 that those same Jews from Pisidian Antioch, the very same Jews from the two cities he'd just been in, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, finally tracked him down, stoned Paul, dragged his limp body out of the city and left him for dead, thinking that they had finally succeeded in killing him. Now, most of us have never seen a stoning. I hope, you've, I hope you never have. But what I understand about the stoning in those days is not like kids on the playground at the elementary school chucking rocks at each other, that there was a methodical process, and that it usually ended with the victim on his back and an enormous stone just cast down on his chest to stop his heart. He miraculously survived his injuries, continued westward across the Aegean Sea to Philippi, where Paul and Silas were again brutally attacked, publicly stripped naked, severely beaten, and imprisoned. They were threatened in Thessalonica. They were hunted in Berea and forced to flee both cities. We, we know from his letter to Thessalonica that, that he was worried sick about the condition of the new believers in that city whom he had been forced to leave behind as the threat of persecution hung over them like the proverbial sword of Damocles. And last week we saw that in Athens he was largely dismissed with polite contempt rather than being violently driven out. And though he had believed that he and his team had been directed through a vision to minister in Macedonia, it's not hard to imagine that the mission had not at all gone quite as Paul might have anticipated. Not like he'd expected. And I wonder, is it possible that that he had begun to second-guess himself to second-guess his interpretation of the vision. Might he have been in a place of wondering what more could go wrong and why God was allowing things to go so very badly? Paul himself wrote that the coming to Corinth was in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. I think our tendency because it's my tendency as well. For for most of us, we we think kind of one-dimensionally about Paul. Uh, We usually only think of him as strong, bold, courageous, self-assured, impetuous. But here we're given a real glimpse, I think, into Paul's humanity. We go from a one-dimensional view of the man to a three-dimensional view of the man. 
we encounter a Paul on this occasion who is so weak, so fearful, so weighed down with anxiety that it threatened to drive him into depression. I happened onto a report recently from the, the European Center for Environment and Human Health. You say, why do you read stuff like that? And I don't know. I just happened onto it. But it indicated that people who have been injured through repeated violence are six times more likely to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder than people who have been injured, for example, in accidents. Six times. They're three times more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and other mood disorders, the report said. No wonder, then, that Paul would later write to the church in Corinth describing his condition prior to arrival in their city with these words. Listen, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Stop and consider what he was saying. I think of all, we've all heard people make the claim that, that God will never give you more than you can handle. Have you heard that? I think Paul might dispute that claim, don't you? He said that he and his team despaired of life itself, that they felt that they had received the sentence of death. I don't think he's exaggerating. I don't think this is hyperbole. That word despaired in the Greek language has a very specific meaning. It describes someone who has experienced such dishonor, such humiliation, such shame and mistreatment in the eyes of others, that they feel that they've come to the end of their resources and that there's no way out. And as I, I read that, as I was preparing for this message, and I read that about that word despair, it, it struck me, that's, that's what you hear from people who are about to commit suicide. I've come to the end of my resources. I don't feel like there's any way out. How many times do you have to be rejected, maligned, hunted, mercilessly beaten for preaching the gospel before you begin to think twice about it? This was Paul's life. What did God know about Paul as he brought the gospel to Corinth? He knew that Paul was experiencing a level of fear that threatened to prevent him from continuing to speak boldly and courageously in the name of Jesus. How do we know that? At verse 9 of Acts chapter 18, the passage we read together earlier, in the early days of Paul's time in Corinth, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. And as I just at the outset of my preparation for this message, as I read that, that, that just jumped off the page at me. Why would God say to a guy like Paul, do not be afraid? Is it just loose language? Eh, don't be afraid. I don't think so. What do you think? Do you think Paul might have had significant cause to be afraid? The, the fear might have started to become a theme in his 
mental processing? Do you think he might have come to a place where he was struggling with a significant level of anxiety? Is it possible that, that he may have suffered from some permanent physical injuries from the severe attacks on him? Be reminded that Paul's history of suffering is not given exhaustive treatment in Acts. We actually don't know the full extent of the persecution he endured and the injuries he suffered. We, we do know from his letters that his character was relentlessly attacked and called into question. On many occasions, he was falsely accused. And even a man of the stature of Paul was not immune to suffering. And that, that's a very important thing for, for each of us to make note of in our own times of testing. Not only does this passage point to Paul's condition, which could be described as fearfulness, anxiety, depression, even despairing of life itself, but it points us also, I think, then, to the comfort that he received from the hand and the heart of God. In Genesis 16, the servant girl Hagar referred to Yahweh as the God who sees. The God who sees. El Roy, the God who sees. The God who sees me. The God who sees you. Nothing in all the earth, visible or invisible, escapes his notice. And in the midst of Paul's deep Discomfort, God also saw his condition and responded with attentiveness and encouragement, with compassion and with comfort. Notice verse 9 again. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. And it was more than a pep talk. It's more than a pep talk. As, as I read this passage, I see five sources of greatly needed comfort that were given to Paul as personal gifts from this loving, sovereign God who saw him as he was. And the first was the gift of partnership. Partnership, and in this case, human partnership. Read again verses 2 to 5 with me. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now this Aquila was a Jew. He was a native of Pontus, it says, uh, which is a region in what is now northern Turkey, uh, along the southeastern shore of the Black Sea. If you go east from there, you, you enter, these days, you enter the modern state of Georgia, uh, just on the, on, on the border to the east. Um, he and his wife Priscilla, were recently expelled from Rome, it says. That that happened by an order of the Emperor Claudius in 49 AD uh, because of rioting that was taking place in the Jewish community in Rome. Um, most scholars, most historians believe that the rioting had to do with, uh, it was Jews rioting against these these followers of this thing new thing called the Way, whose leader was Christus or Christ. So it was Jews rioting against Christians in Rome, and, and the, the Romans just wouldn't have that. 
the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was was of supreme value. So the events we're reading about uh, probably took place almost precisely in the middle of the first century. What did Paul find in Aquila and Priscilla? What made them such gifts from God? Well, first of all, he found two people who earned their living in the same trade in which he earned his living. They were card-carrying, badge-wearing union members of the Tent Makers Guild. Um, now, word translated tent maker can also be translated leather worker because most tents in those days were made from animal hides, uh, but some, some were made, uh, the more expensive ones, were made from something called Cilician wool. Not Sicilian, that's that's like mafia stuff, but Cilician, uh, a fabric made of the, the woven hair of a type of goat that was native to the Roman province of Cilicia, which, as you know, was where Paul grew up. And, and so this may have been a specialty for Paul. But not only did Paul find fellowship in their common trade, but it seems that Aquila and Priscilla were already believers in Messiah Jesus when they came from Rome. They, they were among those Jews that were expelled because of, um, maybe because they were in danger. So, so Paul also found a brother and sister in Christ, uh, who proved to be mature believers and became very close friends. And they gave him a place to stay in their home while he was in Corinth. But more than that, Priscilla and Aquila became highly valued friends, trusted partners, lifelong supporters in Paul's missionary work. And at some point, they'd gone back to Rome. So when Paul wrote his letter to the church there, in his final comments, he gave instructions to pass on this greeting to them. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So so something happened that we don't know about in which Priscilla and Aquila had to lay their lives on the line for Paul. They were, they were those kinds of friends. God's gift of partnership came next in the arrival, like the cavalry coming over the hill, I think, of his teammates Silas and Timothy. And Paul had to have been incredibly encouraged just to see their faces again, refreshed and uh, at, at the reunion with these faithful friends. How important was their arrival at this moment? Well, how valuable are faithful friends when, when, when things are looking bad? When Paul wrote to... No, I'm getting ahead of myself. The words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4 ring true here. With Ecclesiastes 4, 9 and 10 and 12... Two can accomplish more than twice as much as one, for the results can be much better. If one falls, the other pulls him up. But if a man falls when he's alone, he's in trouble. And one standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three is even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So with the arrival of, of, of Silas and Timothy, Paul must have felt greatly strengthened. Not only that, but uh, they brought good news about the Christians in Thessalonica. When Paul wrote to them from Corinth, he included this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And, and now listen how, to how this passage ends. He says, 
For now we live. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And don't miss the significance of, of his words. Having once despaired of life itself, Paul was now able to say, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And that wasn't all. They also brought with them a, a generous financial gift from the congregation of believers in Philippi. And what an expression of partnership that was. It's reflected in in the opening sentences of his letter to the Philippians, where he said, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of what? Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Uh, the, The gift of Partnership and friendship and Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, and Timothy, the, the good news about the Thessalonians, the financial gift of the Philippian church, which was actually the first of many that came from that church, profoundly lifted Paul's spirits. And they became lifelines to his recovery. The financial support enabled Paul not only now to, to minister on the Sabbaths in the synagogues, but actually throughout the whole week. He wasn't dependent now on his tent making for income. Come back with me now to verses 9 to 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What reasons did the Lord give to Paul for not succumbing to fear, shrinking back, for not ceasing to preach in his name. First, he reminded him of the promise of his presence. His presence. He said, I am with you. This is not a new promise. It's it's a reminder of an older one. As Jesus commissioned his disciples to be disciple makers, he added this promise, and behold, I am with you always. I am. Am with you always to the very end of the age. Earlier he had said to them as the, as the realization was breaking into their consciousness that he was going away. Remember in the, the upper room discourse there in, in John 14 and 15 and 16, um, that O oh crud moment, Jesus is going away. Uh, this is actually happening. Uh, he said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will be with you. I will be in you. I'm sure Paul would recall the words of David in Psalm 41 where he wrote, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. God said to Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Silas, and Timothy are with you, but infinitely more importantly and infinitely more powerfully, I am with you. I'm right here beside you. I'm not leaving. I've got this. You can trust me. And how powerfully encouraging is the promise of his presence with us as we attempt to minister in his name. Without his presence, without his power, we're, we can do nothing. God's second promise to Paul in verse 10 is protection. No one will attack you to harm you. 
No one will attack you to harm you. This is the the promise of a season of peace from those who would try to harm him. No one will lay a hand on you to harm you. The presence of God would mean for Paul the protection of God. And that that two-word phrase, no one, is actually just one word in the Greek language, and it means absolutely no one, no one at all, without exception. It's it's a promise only the sovereign God who is in benevolent control of all things could make. And you and I should call this to mind in, in times of adversity that God, our God, is in sovereign control even of our suffering. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. Again, how how therapeutic this must have been for Paul. Suffering from fear, from anxiety, from depression, some level, we would say today, of post-traumatic stress disorder, not to mention the physical discomfort of injuries sustained during the beatings and stonings, to receive a, a promise of absolute protection by the sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. God saw Paul. He knew that this man whom he had called to take the gospel to the Gentiles had been pressed to the very limits of his ability to endure and was now in desperate, desperate need of a season of relief from his suffering. This is what God promised to Paul, and this is what God delivered to Paul. In addition to his sovereign power, the Lord pointed out another reason why Paul would be protected, and it has to do with people. People. He says in the latter part of verse 10, I have many in this city who are my people. And the statement I think immediately raises a question. The proclamation of the gospel had barely begun in Corinth. So how is it that the Lord is able to say, I have many in this city who are my people? What did he mean? There's a reminder here, I think an echo of, of what Jesus said in John 10, 16, where, when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will, future tense, listen to my voice. So there will be future tense, one flock, one shepherd. Now there in Corinth, the Lord said to Paul, there are many in Corinth who are my people. Take it by faith, Paul. You don't see them, you don't know them yet, because they have not yet believed, but they're going to. They will. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of your faithful proclamation of the gospel, because in my sovereign purpose, I have chosen them. They already belong to me. See, God was promising Paul success in his efforts, an abundant harvest, an expanding community of Christ followers who, who, who would not only follow him, but would support him, who would protect him in his ministry. Three names appear in today's text of, of some of those who were the first to believe. Titius Justice, a worshiper of God whose home seems to have become the, the base of operations for the mission to the Gentiles in, in Corinth. Uh, Crispus, the man whose name always sounds to me like a breakfast cereal. But, but who was the ruler of the synagogue and who believed in Jesus along with his entire household? 
And Sosthenes, who is also identified as the ruler of the synagogue. And in the first verse of the first chapter of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, he begins his greeting this way. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. And, and so if this is the same Sosthenes, and I assume it is, then it's an indication that he also was converted and that the synagogue in Corinth was consequently short two rulers, and also that Sosthenes had joined Paul's team. Finally, God gave Paul an enormous gift that, that validated his promise of protection and would make Paul's life at least a little easier for the foreseeable future. And it came in this surprising establishment of a legal precedent. Not something you're looking for, right? Doesn't sound too spiritual. But but here's a legal precedent. Check out verses 12 to 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, maybe that was a moment where God was saying, Paul, shut your mouth. But as Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, Luke dates this event with, within a narrow window of time when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, uh, the Roman province which was just south of Macedonia, which included the two cities of Athens and Corinth, as well as a number of others. Here's what Roman history says. Roman history says that Gallio actually served as proconsul of Achaia for less than a year. Why do I share that with you? Kind of as an interjection, because I want you to understand that what you're reading is true. That Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. And that Luke is so precisely dating this for us. There was a narrow window from the second half of A.D. 51 to the first half of A.D. 52. The English Standard Version, which we use here at LifePoint, mentions a united attack on Paul, which unfortunately conveys a sense that's not actually fully present in the text. More literally, it reads, the Jews rose up with one accord and brought Paul before the Bema seat, or the seat of judgment, the, what the ESV calls the tribunal. No acts of violence are implied in this action. It's important to make note of that because that's what God had promised Paul, right? If there was an attack on this occasion, it seems to have been verbal and not physical. Together, the Jews then brought an accusation against Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. So the question arises, to which law were they referring? Were they referring to Roman law, which which recognized only certain religions as legally uh, sanctioned, or or were they they referring to Jewish law? Uh, They probably meant the former, they, they probably wanted Gallio to see this as a violation of Roman law. Gallio, um, 
understood them to be referring rather to the latter, that is, to Jewish law. And, and he just saw this whole thing as an intramural squabble between various sects of Judaism and, and just refused outright to issue a judgment. And with that, he just sent them out of the tribunal. Decision triggered a mob action. Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, received a beating in front of the Bema seat. Why was he beaten and by whom? Luke doesn't tell us. There are at least three possibilities. First, that he may have been beaten by a Jewish mob because either they knew that he had already confessed faith in Jesus as Messiah, or second, that they they felt that he had inadequately, as the ruler of the synagogue, pled their case to Gallio. Uh, On the other hand, a third possibility is that he was beaten by a crowd of Gentiles in in just frustration um, in an outbreak of the anti-Semitism that often laid just below the surface at at times like this. Luke says that Gallio as proconsul paid no attention. Why? The late John Stott pointed out that Gallio's seeming lack of concern doesn't necessarily mean that he was indifferent to injustice, but that he simply considered it judicious to turn a blind eye on this occasion to this particular act of violence. It wasn't something he wanted to deal with. But here's the benefit to Paul and other evangelists. In effect, by passing a favorable verdict on the Christian faith, really unwittingly passing that verdict, he established a legal precedent that was immensely important for the future of the gospel. Christianity, this this little, what they considered just a little sect of Judaism, um, could not, at least for a time, be treated as an illegal religion under the law of the empire. So Jesus promised that that he would protect Paul, was given official guarantee by the Roman proconsul. Imagine that. So that that one of his chief means of protection would be Roman law itself, at least for a time. But it was an observable, quantifiable win for Paul and for the future mission of the church. Luke's statement in verse 11 that he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God to them reflects, I think, the fulfillment of God's promises and God's provision. God gave to Paul what he had promised, a time of rest a time of healing, a time of refreshment. Well, before we go eat pie, let let me just call you to some present considerations. And let me ask you, how how are we doing these days? How are we doing? How am I doing? How, How are you doing? We've just come through three years of pandemic Anybody here been through a pandemic prior to this? Don't think so. Unless you're really, really old. And this pandemic is proving to have been a watershed moment in the American culture. The the COVID-19 pandemic is being described as the hardest, most impactful health crisis of the modern era. And along with the obvious medical matters, fear of infection, Scientific literature is, is, is highlighting the severe psychological implications of this pandemic, including stress, anxiety, and depression, surprise, surprise, and a host of other mental health crises. In the church, pastors all across America are feeling overstretched and emotionally exhausted. Most churches in America lost 20 to 40% of their congregation through the pandemic 
and they haven't come back. Pastors are are struggling with burnout at unprecedented levels. Barna Research reports that between November of last year, just a year ago, and March of this year, just a period of four to five months, the percentage of pastors considering quitting full-time ministry rose a dramatic 9% from 33%, fully one-third of all pastors, to 42%. Our own district executive minister here in Converge Northwest, whom some of you have met, Nate Heading, Nate Heading uh, told me recently in his words that he is witnessing pastors burning out, stepping out, or failing out in record numbers. And when asked, the, the four top reasons given by pastors who are considering quitting the ministry are, number one, the immense stress of the job, number two, feelings of loneliness and isolation, number three, political divisions in the church over things like masks and vaccines and elections, and number four, the overall negative effects of pastoral ministry on their families. See, and I would be lying to you if I were to stand up here and claimed uh, to be immune to these same feelings. As I've interacted with other pastors, the sense is that those who predicted that things wouldn't ever go back to the way they were before the pandemic were actually right after all. Now, the toothpaste is out of the tube. It's not going back in. Many of us, not just pastors, many of us, have lost loved ones to COVID. Others have lost friends to disagreements over how we should respond to COVID. And some have lost their jobs. There were some here at LifePoint that that made choices to leave during the pandemic because they believed either that we were cowards knuckling under to the tyranny of government or, on the other hand, that we were criminals showing a reckless disregard for human life. I miss those people. I think many of you do too. I I love them. I uh, mourn the decisions they made. And I'll be honest, their departures hurt me uh, personally. Um, Their departures, I think, hurt our church deeply. Uh, These have been difficult years for me, for you, for all of us. Each of us have suffered at some level in our own ways. Each of us has endured woundedness and pain. So so how should we respond? What can we learn from the passage we've been considering about how to find comfort in the midst of it all? Allow me to suggest just a few things, then we'll be done and we can go and have a nice piece of pie, which, come to think of it, may be one small and important step toward emotional health. Uh, first, I, I think that we... We have to honestly acknowledge what has occurred. That things have in fact changed dramatically in the world. Um, in our personal lives. In the church. And there's no going back to the way things were. And as we do that, I think it's important that we name our losses and take time to grieve them ready to grieve them, not blow them off, but to grieve them. In biblical terminology, we need to learn to lament, to to fully express to God what has happened and how we feel about it. 
For example, in Psalm Psalm 13, God cries out to God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Secondly, it's extremely important, I think, for us as Christ followers to buck the current cultural trends and move toward deeper Christian community rather than away from it. The fact is that we do need each other. And it's easy to say that. We've all heard the the slogan, well, we're better together. And that is true to a point. But the fact is, for Christians, because of who we are, because of who the Bible says we are and what we are, we are essential together. We're absolutely essential together. And I'll be honest and I'll be forthright to say, I need you. Not just because I'm your pastor, but because you're my church. I'm one of you, part of this community. I I need you. When Paul was experiencing the darkest nights of his soul, God sent him faithful, godly friends. The writer of Hebrews challenged his readers, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Couldn't that have been written last week? Doesn't that sound like today? And I just want to say to you, I'm glad that we're online. I'm glad that we're able to provide that service. But but unless you can't get here physically, sitting in your pajamas in front of the boob tube watching a preacher hold forth is not going to church. It's not. It's not. Third, I want to encourage you to do what a Christian brother hundreds of years ago called practicing the presence of God. What does that mean? Simply this, that you live in the awareness that that God is with you as you go about every day. Every day. He promised his presence. He lives in you. He is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you, no matter how dark things may become. And so you live each moment in the realization of that reality. And finally, you give yourself to fulfilling the mission and ministry for which God called you, for which Christ saved you, and for which the Holy Spirit has gifted you. Satan would love nothing more than to render you ineffective in your personal ministry, the ministry that he expects from you. 
to discourage you, to disillusion you, to get you to throw in the towel, to get you to abandon the church. And I just want to say, please don't let him do that. Don't let him have the win. And if you're in that place of discouragement and disillusionment, disillusionment, would you please tell somebody? Would you please tell somebody? Maybe it's me, maybe it's Evan, maybe it's one of our elders, maybe it's your life group. Maybe it's just a close friend who really cares about you. Tell somebody. Don't give up. Rest in his presence, the promises and the power of God and in partnership with his people and let's move forward. Shall we move forward? Shall we get past COVID-19? Shall we get past this dark night and move forward? God has more for us to do and to be. Sorrow, the Bible says, may last for the night, but joy will come in the morning. Good morning. Good morning. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. We've made the voyage. We've endured the winter. We may be in pretty rough shape, but by the grace and the mercy of God, we survived. So let us celebrate, and let us give thanks, and let us eat pie. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this powerful passage. And Lord, I pray that you just use it according to your purpose in each life today. I don't know what everybody heard, but you you do. And you interpreted and translated all of it to each of us. And so, Lord, would you use it? And Lord, let's would you allow us to, to move forward now? And, and trust you, realizing that things have changed. They're not going to go back to the way they were. But it's a new day with uh, new resources and, and new people and new opportunities. And so, uh, Lord, help us not to shrink back, not to be afraid, but to keep on making the gospel known and living it out in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.